Hello and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. Before I introduce today's guest, a quick announcement. One of the interesting things to come out of producing these episodes so far is that every single guest uses Twitter to keep up with the latest machine learning research and to follow the most important people in the field. And while I am generally hesitant to use any sort of social media, when a bunch of smart people I'll tell you to do the exact same thing, you should probably do it. So I'm going to follow my own advice on this one, and I have started a Twitter account. So you can follow me at CharlieU, you spelled the normal way, CharlieU AI. And I'll be posting highlights from the podcast, so I record the video of both me and my guest, as well as posting things that I've learned on the job and things that I've learned from doing these interviews. So again, that is Charlie UAI. I hope to see you there. My guest today is a PhD candidate at the University of Heidelberg's Computational Linguistics Department, researching multimodal machine learning. She's known for her creative, colorful, and caffeinated animated videos on her YouTube channel, AI Coffee Break. Please welcome Letizia Parkalabescu. Welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. Hello, thanks for having me here. Yeah, and I do have to say, first of all, that I really do love your YouTube channel. It's like uh, it's really hilarious at some points, but also super informative. Like the videos are nice and short and punchy. It's really great. Thanks. Uh, yeah, that was... Um... Great idea I had just to have also a very lighthearted and um, relaxed version of telling science to to other people, because I'm usually writing papers for my PhD, and those are very strict, and you cannot really have something creative in there. But uh, yeah, and I think the YouTube channel is a great escape, and I'm so happy to hear that people enjoy it. <laughs> And the first question that I always like to ask our guests is, 
how were you first exposed to computer science and what made you decide to pursue it? I know that computer science actually wasn't your first major choice. So can you explain how you transitioned to that? Oh, yeah. So my way to computer science was very convoluted, I have to say, because so I went to school in Romania and there I had not so much contact with uh, computer science. And uh, then I went to study physics uh, to, uh, to Heidelberg. So and there it was awesome that the study program was so open to fill every other curiosity I had. And first, and uh, also during my school um, time, I was very interested in philosophy, for example, and I tried out philosophy in my first semester while studying physics. I also did some biology courses and math courses. Uh, and in my third semester, then I uh, had my first computer science course, which was actually a programming course. And I immediately fell in love. And yeah, I stuck with computer science. And even though I had my bachelor in physics, my uh, master's in physics, I always had my physics thesis uh, very close to computer science and uh, collaborating with computer science professors. It seems to be a pretty common path, actually, from people who are interested in physics and then move into machine learning, data science. I know that I work with at least two people every single day who both have PhDs and research experience in physics, and then they decided that they wanted to get more into machine learning. So when did that machine learning come into play? Yeah, so um, actually from the third, fourth semester already, because um, I had this um, programming course with a professor of computer science, which was actually also a physicist by formation. And uh, yeah, so um, AI was always an option because I was working with him. And yeah, I think so going from physics to computer science is just so natural because computer science also requires a lot of math and um, probabilistic theory that you also do in physics. And I, I know I would have been also happy in physics following a full physicist career. But when I first started in computer science, I was always so happy that I was working towards a software or a product or an algorithm that people could use then uh, later. And uh, I was during my physics studies, I was also very interested in astrophysics, but there I saw no point of making other people happy. So I couldn't uh, see how figuring out or finding, observing a distant galaxy would make people happy and with coding and programming it was so different suddenly and i think so also ai has such important applications to everyone yeah it's incredible that computer science you can when you're like you said building a software product you can go from idea to having people use it in like less than a month in some cases whereas physics yeah it's much harder to see uh, like you said where that comes into play yeah. So you're currently doing your PhD at University of Heidelberg. How did you get interested in multimodal machine learning specifically? Okay, yeah. So during my previous studies, so master studies, I was working more in computer vision. And yeah, so computer vision was uh, where I was. So I was applying... AI to computer vision and machine learning to computer vision. But since I was interested always in philosophy and in language, uh, always, 
I thought, uh, why not switch to NLP for my PhD? And that was like the plan. But then I found, so I'm working with Professor Dr. Annette Frank, and then I found a very high interest in her to combine these two. I know already a lot of compu about computer vision, and I learned very fast in NLP. Why not do something that combines uh, these two? And I also think, so when people are discussing to getting to understand, so in NLP, people want to teach machines to learn or to understand language. But I don't think one can understand language if you not if you never looked at the world. So I want to teach AI models to have also a lot of visual understanding. Uh, there are other people working in audio signals understanding. And I think it's very important to combine these two. And I'm very happy to, to work on this. And it also fulfills my two interests uh, very well. Mm -hmm. You have a really great series recently on your YouTube channel about some of your work in the current research of the state of multimodal machine learning. And I've come across these papers in the past, but your first video of the series where you actually go into defining what multimodality actually is super interesting. I'd never actually thought about what the real definition is. I just assumed that it was like a solved problem, but can you explain? Yeah, uh, exactly. So it came, um, so I also talked to people and uh, we were discussing what multimodality is and so no, actually first it starts by just talking about multimodality. And then when we started to think about what it is, people were very, they were having so many different opinions and we were actually not agreeing about what multimodality is. And yeah, the video which where I try to define multimodality is more of a definition experiment. I don't think that will be the definitive experiment that you know, everyone, um, uh, definitive definition that everyone will use. But I was trying to marry the two other big directions in definitions that I've seen so far. Uh, so I've seen the very human-centered view of, so the definition of multimodality that focuses a lot on humans, which makes sense if you define multimodality for for other applications which are not really machine learning, but for example, when you're discussing yeah media, so and you're you're talking about uh, other areas like news and um, yeah, so news would be one application. But, you know, so not really teaching machines to do that, but uh, in the way that people perceive different medias and different modalities. And yeah, so that's the human-centered view that is defining multimodality as being a some, from a perceptual stance where I don't agree to this view because if you say it's about perception, it's about vision, smell, of uh, about feeling stuff, so touching stuff, why would you think that if you're doing machine learning and if you're teaching a, a model to do that, if why do you think that it experiences it the same? So I always take the example of an image of text. So you take a picture of, of handwriting and you just have the text as a TXT file. Uh, this human-centered view uh, thinks they're the same modality because uh, for a human, if you read from an image or if you read from a text file, it's the same. But we're doing machine learning here, and I don't think that the machine should, you know, experience the world um, similarly because it doesn't if you think that the machine experiences the world in the first place. And then we have the machine-centered view where 
everyone focuses on encoding and on the medium that the information is transmitted with. But then if we are focusing on encoding, we which is actually a sensible thing to do because for a computer, a PNG file and a JPEG file are not the same. You have to treat them differently. But why would a PNG and a JPEG file would be a different modality for the same picture? I, I don't agree also to that. So I have this definition where I say, and where I try to marry this human-centric view and the machine-centered view, where I say that uh, in multimodality, you have to have two different um, input types so you have to have them on different types of media. But if you want to do it for machine learning, you should think about a machine learning model that that looks at these different modalities as being different if it cannot unambiguously map the input from one modality to another. So, for example, you can map a PNG to a JPEG quite unambiguously, unambiguously but you cannot map a picture of text and to the text very unambiguously because you lose all the information about the handwriting. And if you try to map it back, so from text to image, you have so many realizations in an image of the same text. And yeah, so this is why I think that it's a better way to think about multimodality. And this definition also allows us to answer other questions that uh, come up if you want to write a paper about multimodality. For example, are two graphs the same modality or not? Or is so like this picture of a text and the text are they the same modality? And for a de working definition, I think we have to adapt a little because the human-centered view is not fitting for machine learning and the machine-centered view is uh, not fitting for because we as humans want to teach from our data, we want to teach models to, to learn uh, about the world. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. And I think you call it even the information-centric view. Exactly. Because it yeah. really is, in terms of like information theory, it's you're being able to map things unambiguously to one another without any sort of loss in information is like uh, the crux of that. Are there, exactly. yeah, when you're talking to your colleagues who also study this, what do, like, do they tend to agree with this? Do they tend to criticize it? If so, like, what are the reservations? Yeah, I, I always encounter reservations. They don't, I know of a lot of people who like the human-centric view because they say how else experiences like this, but uh, how else should anyone, any machine experience it? <laughs> but I don't agree because we want to give the machines our power, which is, for example, to perceive the world in our, in the so with with usual light, so with in the way that we also do it when we are looking at the visible spectrum of light, but we want to make machines also a little, at least superhuman, where we want a machine to focus on uh, or to be able to learn or look at, uh, at another kind of spectra, which we as humans don't perceive, like ultraviolet or infrared. And why should infrared be a different modality now? Because we humans don't uh, are not able to perceive it. There are animals who can perceive it. Why, why should be the human normative for how we conduct machine learning, especially when we're teaching machines to do something? And yeah, they look at the definition and they're like, yeah, I don't know, perhaps, but I, I like the human-centered view. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, being able to incorporate some of that information that humans aren't able to perceive is it really makes your mind spin as to like what the possible applications for all of this could be. So for something else interesting that I thought of was like we as humans, we can't read other people's minds, but like a machine can talk to other machine learning models in like any way that it wants. So it you can use certain things like that to have like swarms or something for different drones or. Exactly. So uh, inter-machine communication is a, yeah, a thing that we cannot model by how we communicate. But even you were talking about mind reading, a machine could read our minds if it has enough electrodes that would sample the brain activity. And our imagination and uh, the, how we view everything shouldn't be the limit of uh, how, what machines could do and how we could program them. What do you think are the most exciting potential applications or use cases for multimodal machine learning? Well, I think so So many applications are exciting that it's a little unfair to pick uh, out some, <laughs> but, but I will do it. And are you did you ask about multimodal machine learning or machine learning in general? We can do, we'll, we'll go with all of machine learning first, and then we can get drill into specifically multimodal. Uh, yeah, so for machine learning, it's uh, nice to have what we do have right now. But I think that embodiment would be like what, yeah, one of the most interesting machine learning applications that we are not really having right now. Yeah, but I think so if, if we're, I was talking before about the uh, stages in natural language understanding, and I think so embodiment is one of the highest stages um, in understanding, just looking at text in NLP is one of the lowest stages in understanding. Multimodal uh, machine learning is one of the middle stages where we have the AI that can also have a perception of the world. But embodied AI is something that that is so fascinating because the machine learning model can not only observe the environment, but it can also interact. So it can trigger it events itself that it can observe then and learn from them. Because just in astronomy, we have the problem that we have to wait for things to happen very long. And in machine learning, that problem is not that bad. But we do see it because in data, we have already always this uh, Zipfian distribution where something occurs very often and we have a lot of data about that phenomenon, but other things occur far more uh, less often or not at all. And in embodiment, you have all, uh, already the possibility that the system itself triggers this instance of um, it, it can generate itself a data point by the reacting with the environment and generating that kind of of data point. And I think that so in machine learning, embodied AI is so interesting and so cool. Wow. Yeah, that really is fascinating as the point about how it, it can make the, the quote decision on its own to go out and collect more samples on something that it feels that it should get more, oh. more experience with. Is there a, it seems like this is more toward like this, these are all steps very much so towards AGI, whereas now we have like the narrow AIs where we are only focusing in most cases in non-multimodal machine learning, where it's just taking one thing and maybe converting it or using it in some way. 
But for a GI definition in general, which is taking in tons and tons of these different modality inputs and being able to, like you said, not only just process it, but also interact with the world in some way. Yeah, exactly. And the next stage is then, of course, the social AI where so an embodied AI can trigger uh, and generate data points by itself by, you know, triggering it in the environment. But a social AI is the one that understands that these these triggers are then really changing the world and impacting the world because it under, it's understanding that it's always related to other instances of other AIs or other humans. And yeah, the AGI would be then yeah even further on the understanding stage scale yeah and I, I just saw that you very recently like a few hours ago posted a video on the stages can you explain a little bit about about that yeah exactly i think this is why this topic is so fresh in my mind right now <laughs> because so yeah i've uh, posted a, a video that which is about a recent paper that is exploring so it's entitled how ground no i forgot the title but it's uh, grounding no, anyway, but it's defining five world scopes that if fulfill them all, you should achieve natural language understanding. And the first stage is, of course, the corpus era, where if you just, uh, so if we think about how NLP was done uh, even before I was born, then <laughs> you just have corpora, you annotate them very densely and very well with a high quality, a lot of human annotation work, and you try to learn something from that corpora, which could be very specific phenomena like reference or generating syntax trees, for example. That was a very huge deal in NLP before I entered the field. And uh, then the internet stage, the uh, world scope two, the internet stage is the stage we're really in right now when we look at GPT-3 that is looking at basically the whole internet and then learning so many things that we first don't expect it to learn because perhaps we don't have a very good overview of what the data actually is that GPT-3 is looking at. We have the third world scope, which is perception, where multimodal machine learning plays a huge role. And this is why I think it's so motivating to do research in multimodal NLP because we're working, uh, we're one step further towards natural language understanding. The fourth uh, world scope is then embodied AI, where as discussed before, you, uh, the AI already can trigger events uh, by itself and can interact with the, with the world. And the fifth stage, so the fifth world scope is the social AI, where it can really impact other entities, other AIs, other humans with its actions. And it also knows how and how to impact it, uh, other entities. Like you said, it seems like we are right at that, may, perhaps the end of that internet stage in some cases, especially with now with GPT-3, and just starting to understand what might be possible in that next stage with multimodality. What do you think is like what does the what does the GPT three result of multimodality look like? Like what's the holy grail where we can say, okay, we can now try and work on this embodiment problem? 
Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, as uh, I find this question very stunning because we're so uh, at the very beginning of multimodal NLP <laughs> yeah. that it's actually a little hard to dream about the end of multimodal NLP. Yeah, but I think how we already see it in the internet era or stage, if we're, when we're finished with the perception stage, we would have a GPT 50, let's say, <laughs> that uh, can look at the whole internet of YouTube videos, videos uh, and images and discussions and audio files and text combined and also understand the relationships between these um, different modalities. So um, it should just get the text not aligned uh, to, to other modalities and it should figure out by itself that this video is corresponding to that piece of text or it should be able to translate by itself this one modality into the other. So yeah, I think it's it's another kind of the internet era where the internet era opens up to all modalities, not only to text. And I think if we have that, so if we have GPT-50 that can look at all modalities at once, at all modalities that are on the internet and do and be able to solve multimodal tasks like zero shot or few shot, then we are there. Wow, that's crazy to think about, especially when you consider that the why GPT-3 is so stunning in some cases is because it can generate language open-ended from the language that has been it's been trained on. And so with this GPT-50, you can imagine it would be able to not only just take in all the information online, all the different types of information, but in turn be able to take in an input and then generate the video or a knowledge graph or any other type of modality. Yeah, it's scary to think about it because uh, already the applications that are not um, in need of a GPT-50 are, are scary. Just think about uh, deep fakes. <laughs> and uh, it's, I think, so yeah, we should always go towards towards this goal but we have to also think so we researchers and not somebody else not politicians i mean with politicians but not politicians only so everyone together should think about the ethics about uh, about all this so we i don't believe yeah i don't believe in so there are people who say that the ethics should be the concern of some other people like politicians or people whose job is this but i think for researchers it is also our job to and one stage towards this is to inform people about what we have already and so yeah uh, this is also one thing that miss coffee bean so uh, what i try to do with my channel so she tries to uh, show to other people where we are and where we could go and so this is so science communication is what i think the first stage of being able to uh, discuss with everybody about the ethics of something. Yeah, I totally agree that scientists, researchers, engineers all need to be thinking about how we can communicate what's happening in the AI space to people who aren't so involved. We've seen how in some cases, well, like there's the AGI prediction which, ha which hasn't come true, but of course, a lot of other things like being able to solve, to beat humans in Go, being able to generate really good text those have come way before anyone could have imagined them. And I still think that people who aren't in the field or are just kind of looking at it from the outside, they don't really understand like the, the full scope of what could happen really soon. 
actually AI should be concerned about the ethics because I always have this physics, uh, compar physics comparison because I come from physics, but what quantum, mecha quantum mechanics means for everyone is not that important or special relativity or even general rel relativity because it's not like it's um, defining the way or impacting the way you go and shop something online. But AI is totally that. It's, it impacts the world uh, nowadays and just now with uh, the whole pandemic going on, the whole world is virtualizing a lot. And the, actually, there's also great directions into this into this direction. And AI helps this virtualization a lot. And yeah, so it's totally a field that impacts everyone. And I don't think that anyone should be left out when we are discussing about the ethics. That's a really great point about the difference where physics, the obviously that quantum mechanics had a a tremendous impact on the field of physics and of course in like the downstream ones like material science and all that and with ai it like you said it does affect everyone even whether they know it or whether they don't in a previous episode i was talking with a with someone who was in who was more involved in ai bias and fairness and we were discussing how like it affects your life in so many ways that you don't even that you can't even tell at one example that I liked was all these dating apps. Now more people are dating with the app than are meeting people on friend, uh, via friends. And that's Whoa. all driven by algorithms, by AI. Yeah. So the yeah. next generation of people is being created by AI in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I, th I think nobody can escape it. Even if they are not really online or using the computer a lot, there's so many other things about just going shopping at the corner that is impacted by AI. And that it goes back to the, the need for communication where we've seen how, I think a lot of people will agree that the greatest science communicators of the past maybe century have been uh, like Richard Feynman and Neil deGrasse Tyson, these are all people who came out of physics. And in some ways, it's because the field is so so weird uh, <laughs> when you get into special relativity. And in a lot of ways, AI is not necessarily weird, but way crazier in terms of the impact. And in some sort of way, you can connect those two where the general public should it's hard to convey to someone who's not in the field exactly how these things work. So maybe the next great science communicator will come out of the AI field in the future. Yeah, and I mean, I hope so, because it's, it's a great need for this. And yeah, you said that physics is a little crazier. And I think compared to AI, surely it is. But even AI, because we're working all, all the time with high dimensional spaces where humans cannot really imagine things anymore i think it's actually almost the same level of craziness and this is also so i experienced it uh, in my videos it's so hard to make a video so that anyone really anyone could understand it i so my videos are mainly for people who are already quite quite good in computer science already and have some knowledge about this but i didn't find the recipe yet to explain exactly how something is working to my mother, for example. 
Yeah, and that's one uh, goal of mine, and I hope I will get there. But I think that the craziness of AI is actually really high, especially because, I mean, it's so hard to tell it to, to someone who really has no idea of mass and probability theory. And yeah, you just explain it like that. And sometimes some concepts in physics are actually even easier to <laughs> to tell to, to really everybody. But AI is, is crazy enough, I think. And we have to invest a lot of work in making everything accessible to everyone. Do you, obviously you said that you don't have the answer of how to communicate these things to lay people, but do you think that it is necessary to to even communicate some of those technicalities or would it be enough to just, from a high level, like this is the potential of it? Yeah, I think it is important because it's it's like explaining a recipe to someone. So just saying what the impact of it could be would say, here's the cake, just eat it. But if you are an alien and don't know if the substances in the cake are harming you or not, you would actually really like to know what's in the cake and how the cake has been made. So you want to know about the recipe. And this is an, an analogy, but if you... If someone wants to know if the if uh, something is harming or or not to to make some rules or to have an opinion about an AI program, you would like to know how it's done. Especially that gives you a little certainty that what's going on and that uh, nobody tries to sell you something that is actually not working. And uh, if people are not scared of something. So if people know how it's, it works, they are also more accepting towards it. And, that, and researchers don't have to fight with, with fear and don't have to fight with illogical fear. And I think that's important. So if we want to discuss ethics, we also have to keep logical and not start, start spreading um, misinformation because we just don't understand the thing. Yeah, that, I really like that point, uh, that analogy of people both want, might want to know what is baked in the cake, so to speak, because it will affect how they, if they use it or how they want to interact with it, if they even want to. But that, of course, that begs the question of, how, yeah, like you said, this is so incredibly technical and you, like, how would you ex even ex start to explain self-attention to your mother? <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> I think I, uh, it's also sometimes a matter of imagination, but also of distancing yourself about what you do daily. Because I is always discuss self-attention with my peers, which who know already what that is. And so let's make the analogy with physics again. In physics, if you make you if you tell them. That experiment where you are in a, in a train and you have a mirror and you still see yourself even if you're traveling with the speed of light, that is, that which doesn't really make sense because you're traveling with the speed of light, so the, your face and the mirror are split by some distance, and you you would expect that the light doesn't reach the mirror anymore because you're traveling already with the speed of light but you can do that experiment and you can explain that experiment with uh, you could do that experiment if you would <laughs> <laughs> i mean but but in your head just as a thought experiment you can have it and you can have this idea and you can explain it to everyone i think what we are lacking is just this out of the box thinking and a lot of imagination and a lot of creativity involved to explain it to everyone just so we need more story to all this and 
it's so hard to have a story uh, if you're if you are so in the matter and always in in the very technicality because as a physicist you see so many so much mathematics and you would try to explain to your mother the formula but what you and this is what we in ai also try to do but <laughs> we have to really uh, just tell a story and think about about that but uh, it's quite hard to do uh, because it, it's a leap that takes also a lot of time and uh, yeah we have to find better analogies and to think about this more yeah yeah that i like about i like how you mentioned that you have to really step out of your day to day in order to be able to see it with fresh eyes and uh, you also have to take into account the what exactly you want to convey to the to the layperson so for if we go back to what we we're talking about with the potential for deep fakes which is what you hear people's imagination in 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 this case is has been severely lacking where if you tell someone just randomly on the street do you think it's possible for me to create a video of you saying like horrible things they'd say yeah. what there's no way but this is happening right now <laughs> yeah yeah totally yeah uh, so and also imagination of the layman is always going more towards the negative aspects because someone of course is a little afraid of something he doesn't know and the imagination of uh, grant writing researchers that want money for their project is more towards a very positive aspect and this is why one more reason to marry the two um, aspects or to try to combine the layman's view and the researcher's view because i think there's the middle ground where everyone should be happy mm -hmm. yeah that's interesting too about how you in a lot of cases you have to be optimistic as a researcher just for like your own sanity of working towards something that you think is really important so to maybe imbue some of that positivity what do you think are if we have that gpt50 model what would be some like really great things that might come out of it yeah it's the same great things that you find in every proposal in every grant proposal <laughs> that you could have a system that would help another person that is not having access to all these modalities have access to them so for example visually impaired people would be very um, happy if they would have a system that would read them out loud or describe them what's happening in front of them just have a little camera with them and the person uh, i mean the person <laughs> the ai just starts to to talk uh, to tell it what, what's going on so yeah I, so i think it would help people a lot that are not having access to some of the modalities because the same example you can have also with the auditory aspect uh, we could that would be so much helpful uh, so helpful in self-driving cars where you can just say go there and it really understands so please park next to the man with the red hat it would really understand what's the red hat uh, where's the man and it would understand my human command so i think these are you know very obvious applications and of course, I I don't have a negative application like just out of the top of my head right now. Well, of course, all of those things can be flipped. I guess like when we're talking oh, yeah. about with the with the deep fakes, where you can oh, totally yeah yeah in the self driving car scenario already 
have this you you yeah. just have to paint a garage door somehow and then the car just wants to drive in because it thinks it's <laughs> parking spot which is not uh which is another parking spot that you the parking the parking spot that you wanted to yeah, visit yeah. in the first place yeah yeah. yeah, and of course, that example in and of itself also highlights that need, like we were talking about before, for incorporating modalities that humans don't have in self-driving cars. You have LIDAR or radar, uh, like laser sensing, and of course, like humans don't have laser sensing. So <laughs> no, <laughs> if you, we of course see people make fall for these mistakes every single day in their car, in their own driving, where they mistake something for another, and maybe if they had that sensing like a car does then the them and the car would be able to adjust for that yeah exactly and uh, one example i didn't uh, see so far in usual multimodal papers is uh, related to medical applications where so we have doctors which um, are usually very able to yeah put a diagnostic but some things you can see in other spectra of light that the doctor cannot perceive and mm -hmm. if you have an ai that can say, see how um, much blood there is in a tissue by looking at other spectra that would be so great and i think so those are very important applications too that are not as flashy as <laughs> self driving cars but i think perhaps even more important yeah, that's really cool too, because you can, if you start to incorporate those feedback loops where the, uh, especially in medical imaging and even to some extent in self-driving, where you can have the AI dictate what it wants to look at next. So you can give it the, I don't know, the, I know nothing about medical imaging, the, the <laughs> whatever you see in the movies, like the blue thing of uh, the CT scan, I think it's called. And, and you feed that into the machine and it'll say, okay you should also get this image. Maybe you can't even see. So to you, it looks like just a blank screen, whereas the computer can say, oh yeah, this is what I needed. Like this is what will diagnose the disease. Yeah. And I don't see it like it would replace doctors, not at all. And But uh, I, it would be so helpful to, to have this. And that's why the problem is that a GPT-50 that we started discussing about would not really be able to do that out of the box. It would have seen so much data in, it would have seen so many memes and so many fail videos <laughs> that it would know all about that. But, you know, this uh, medical data is usually so much um, more, it's not disclosed and it's um, secret and for obvious reasons. But it would be awesome if then GPT-50 would show the same zero shot abilities as gpt3 to be able to then also ha uh, do something with few shot learning on this medical aspect that would be the ideal gpt50 yeah and then if we can combine that even more with with like what you said about the possibility for like direct brain scans i guess where you have like electrodes you can even yeah. do things where like you said, with, with people who are impaired in some way, uh, the model has, having access to all of that data might be able to, this is like probably way down the line, but maybe like tell, have a, be able to convey to a blind person, like what color is, for example, or get, give someone who's yeah. completely deaf, who doesn't even have the pathways, an idea of what music is. So there's definitely the 
like you said, there's a, it can take in all these different things, all the memes, the failed videos, but, mm -hmm. but perhaps the, like we've been talking about, the positives are, are for sure also there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To, we've been talking a lot about stuff that's like way in the clouds, way down the line. <laughs> so to bring it a little bit back down to the ground, can you talk a little bit about the CVPR paper that, uh, that you recently had and your own work with your own research in multimodal machine learning? Yeah, exactly. So recently I had a CVPR paper where the main subject of it is, so I try to do phrase grounding is where you try to localize phrases in images. So you uh, say this portion of the image is referred by a certain phrase in natural language text. And uh, yeah, the thing is, uh, so first, <laughs> so it was a very unexpected outcome because I was very new to um, to multimodal learning in general. And I was trying things out. I was having actually a very complicated and convoluted idea about a system that could have the answer to the universe. And then I wanted a baseline for my for that model that not even today is, was born. <laughs> so, and this baseline was an unsupervised approach to phrase grounding. Meanwhile, so while I was actually conducting experiments and actually almost finished writing, there was another paper that did exactly the same thing, but I think not as good and not as thorough as, <laughs> as we, yeah, as we did, because we also, so the, we also tried to integrate scene graphs into the whole approach. We also tried to integrate some external knowledge from WordNet graphs into this whole approach in order to... It's an unsupervised method that basically computes cosine similarities between between the word, so object labels and the phrase in the text. And we would, uh, of course, try to aid this by scene graphs and this um, external knowledge. And we did that and it, the surprise was totally that it works as well as other weekly supervised or supervised methods. And for me, that's not a win for my paper. I think it's a loss for the other systems because for, my, for me, it was a huge disappointment that the other systems uh, that have a lot of neural processing of image features and uh, language don't really actually do better. And the only one that obviously does better is uh, the multimodal transformer that came, you know, after BERT, when BERT was applied also to images. Yeah, but that means that everything that was done before, it's not so convincing at all in integrating vision and language. And after that result, my research focus shifted immediately into trying to do fusion, so multimodal fusion of vision and language better and well. Yeah, it is incredibly surprising that the that one it that it worked so well when you it, it does seem like like you said to be a pretty intuitive baseline in a lot of ways and it is because a lot of these other phrase grounding systems they incorporate they're super complicated they incorporate like all these they have certain methods by which they try and like fuse the different parts of things whereas your solution is if i understand it correctly it's just looking at an image let's use an object detector figure out what's in this image we have and then you have for each of those objects you have the word you get the word embedding for that and then you just compare it to the word embedding of the or the sentence embedding of the of the phrase is that just, just a phrase yeah yeah just a word embedding of the phrase yeah yeah exactly that's uh, it in a nutshell very well put <laughs> And do you think that 
like what are you having obtained this result and you said that you're now focusing even more on uh, on not only this task but the general app, general problems in in using both images and text what are you thinking about or what are you working on now concerning this yeah uh, so there are two reasons. So first, I try to figure out the reasons why this is going on so wrong, so so bad. <laughs> and one reason is the data set bias. So where some phenomena are so often that the model just relies in predicting that phenomenon only and just discarding everything else, uh, or almost uh, completely discarding everything else. And uh, that's something I don't really want to work on because uh, data set construction is just not really my thing. It's it's something very valuable, but uh, it's not uh, where my interest lies in. And what I now focus on is uh, fo I focus on architectures and how to really do it neurally, not unsupervised uh, like my CVPR paper anymore, but uh, do it neurally and do it better. And yeah, the first idea would be to ask how to do it, uh, how to measure if one does it better. Doing it better is one thing, but also measuring it is the other thing, because especially in phrase grounding, we have the problem that is this accuracy metric that we usually report or recall at K is uh, kind of biased towards, towards some kinds of regions, so not very big, not very small. And uh, you, you just have to find the patch somehow, uh, not that so you have to find a good overlap, but not that of a good overlap. And the system already gets rewarded for having found the patch. And I, I don't think that... So even though the patch contains some other images or completely uh, some other objects that are not really related to what you're searching for. And I think so. one way to to approach the problem is to find better solutions about... Metric. So to find better metrics that tell you better if you are doing better than other systems or not. Because systems right now, also supervised ones, are so close to each other, you don't really know if going that, if increasing the complexity of the model really is uh, paying off or not. Because the metric is, yeah, a little better, but not compelling better. And yeah, so one research direction is the architecture and the other research direction is how to find out if one is really doing better or not. Mm -hmm. And if I understand correctly, the current metric for phrase grounding is intersection over union for the... Exactly. Yeah. And so you mentioned that has some adverse consequences. And if... does that So does that include... So the first of what you said was having possible... Well, first of all, there's the labeling of object detection is in the first place, not always very good. And yeah. also the problem of... It is a scene graph where you are overlapping with multiple different objects. So like uh, in your paper, you had an image of a of like a girl playing soccer. And so there were, of course, it's like the girl, you also have her uniform, and then you also have like the ball, and those all could be in just one big overlapping box. And the way that this was not resolved, but tried in the detection community was with was choosing to do segmentation instead of simply detection. Do you think that's one possible area? Oh, yeah, totally. I think so. It's something I do not really remotely even work on. But yeah, segmentation is such a better uh, way to 
to detect objects because you really pixel by pixel say uh, there's my object and uh, you don't have this bounding box where even in human annotation bounding boxes are so different let's suppose you uh, have the task to draw the bonding box around the man and that man holds a big gun do you draw the bonding box also around the gun or only strictly around the man even if his arm is actually shifted towards um, the gun it's holding the gun and people disagree when they draw the bonding boxes and of course that's a an additional noise injection for object detectors that is completely or very well resolved with uh, segmentation masks yeah and I think also we can see the power of segmentation in the visual backbone that uh, these multimodal transformers try to use. They started with fast arsenian, and I think they also started with it because the code base is so clean and so ready to use for fast RCNN. But I've seen multimodal transformers now using mask RCNN, which is the segmentation version of fast RCNN. Yeah, so there's uh, obviously benefits in that. But I think so <laughs> at the stage of phrase grounding right now, where we cannot even really draw a correct bounding box, <laughs> we, I don't think we can expect to really draw um, masks uh, like segmentation um, masks. But it is a very interesting area of research. And I would love to see more approaches doing that. Mm -hmm. So then I guess what is the... Uh... Like, what are the ideas that you've had in terms of wanting to make the metric a little bit better? <laughs> oh, yeah. So that's the problem with ideas because I cannot. So I'm it's unpublished work and I with machine learning, it's so easy to get. So to have someone publish your idea faster okay, gotcha. and sooner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah sorry. <laughs> okay, that's fine. So if we go back into the architecture side, we've seen that the, is it called? Yeah. Vilbert, which combines... If I understand correctly, it has like you have an image, you have your phrase, and then it has uh, processing on the image or on the text, which is just a normal transformer, and then you have cross attention layers between the two sides. Yeah, and that has achieved a state of the art in like every multimodal learning task yeah. there is apparently. Yeah. So I guess the question is, even in multimodal learning, is attention all you need? <laughs> Uh, so we have seen very recently that attention is all you need uh, holds for visual uh, data only, a state of the art in in image recognition on ImageNet. And we see through this Wilbert that attention is all you need holds also for multimodal learning. <laughs> yeah, so I, I wouldn't say, so attention is of course a very big part of the transformer, but I, I would say that it is an expected outcome but still surprising but it's a very easy to it's very easy to explain this outcome just by the fact that the transformer is a more general architecture than the CNNs or LSTMs and multimodal learning so far basically combined CNNs and LSTMs so it had two branches an LSTM branch for the text and CNN side for the image and then there was some kind of multimodal fusion which could be you know just vector concatenation or element-wise multiplication and so on. And then that was a multimodal neural network before the transformer. And now the transformer basically does the same thing, but with having transformers on both sides. So on both the text region and the image region. And because it's a more general architecture than these the other two, it is working better. I'm, and 
also with the drawback that you have to have more data for uh, making it better. Because these CNNs and LSTMs always have a bias, uh, so um, in the statistical sense, that you force the model to do something that we expect it to do, like a CNN that you should focus on very narrow patches and make it have a global view after you uh, looked at all these uh, small patches. An LSTM has this bias that you have to uh, read from left to right. And there is the bi-directional LSTM where you also reverse this, but it's very human-like and you induce this bias into the network that it should do what we are usually doing when we're reading something. And the transformer doesn't have it. So it has one more degree of freedom. I think it's a term, uh, a very physics related term, but yeah. So it has more degrees of freedom. And this is why you should also have more data to, to be able to learn and be better than your competitors, which is the CNN or the LSTM. And I think, so uh, what we have seen with Wilbert, it has this huge amount of data. You can train on conceptual captions, which is 3.3 million images long. Then you can fine-tune on very many multimodal tasks in a multitask setting. This is what the follow-up paper of Wilbert does. It's called a 12-in-1 paper. And... The, uh, the limitations are not to see yet. We have to still figure out how to really do this fine-tuning, pre-training well in order not to, to avoid catastrophic forgetting and all these uh, problems that come with transfer learning. But because the multimodal transformer with uh, self-attention has more power than its precursors, I think, yeah, they will conquer the world, <laughs> the multimodal world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know there's been research that you highlighted in your recent series of the problems of multimodal models that we've already touched on a little bit, where you have uh, one modality that's just overtaking another. Do you know if there's been any work on if this holds true on Wilbert type models as well, or is that is it too early at this point? So I've seen one paper, it was from the Microsoft group that had actually many tests in their paper. Uh, and in one section, so one of their tests had the conclusion that yes, even uh, the, it wasn't Wilbert only, but it, so that multimodal transformers in general also have this tendency to focus on the language more than on the image. And we here can see again, the same problem, not so predominant or not as that paper put it, but perhaps it could be that the problem is even worse than we expected. But yeah, it's kind of too soon because before critical papers to come, there's you have the first stage where there are a lot of papers that do the easy picking of good and uh, very nice results. And it will take a little while until people really start to think critically about it. But I think it, it started started a little Do you have any idea of what a possible roadmap looks like to try and reduce the discrepancies between the features used from images in natural language? Oh, yeah, I think the first point in that roadmap would be, of course, the data, because we have data, we have models that rely so much on the data. And So tasks until now are formulated such that, so for example, visual question answering, that you can answer the question only if you really look at the image. But 
it it seems like model models can actually solve VQA visual question and answering by looking only at the question and not at the image. And I think so when one has to come up, wants to come up with a VQA data set, one should really test for this always and really um, hard. And yeah, so I think data. Um, Curation would be one thing, but also data acquisition, because I think if we curate the data, we are left with not so much data in the end. So data acquisition is a very huge part of, of this. And I think uh, this is also why multimodal transformers do better than their precursors in the first place, is that they also have this self-training uh, in the pre-training stage. And this self-training, if conducted right, can already align these two modalities better. So to give them both importance, if the self-training tasks are defined to look at both modalities at the same time, like image sentence alignment, where the model has to predict the score of how well the text and the, so the sentence and the image fit together. Uh, so I think we are already on the right track with that part. So with the self-training that aligns the two modalities better. And yeah, the next, so the data, the self-training would be the second point and uh, I don't know. So if, if the third point is, of course, a lot of um, trying out to um, make everything uh, fuse better. So uh, architecture on the architectural side, if we perhaps don't have the answer with the multimodal transformer already, but also really to try to figure out tests uh, that test if this alignment or if this fusion of the two modalities is done right. If So to investigate what modality predominates. Because you cannot really see it's a problem if you don't have the tools to raise an alarm signal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it comes back to a little bit of the discussion we were having before on the importance of evaluation metrics. Are there even, I know that there's some, but are there any like industry standard established metrics in terms of evaluating the discrepancy between what is being learned from? So industry standard, I don't think so, but start uh, practices, I think, yes, there is this, I don't have in mind what they uh, did for, so they analyzed the attention. So on this paper that uh, had the conclusion that multimodal transformers have, are focusing more on the text or, or than on the image, they used actually very interesting analysis. They, it was focusing on uh, how much attention is guided towards the text and how much of the attention is guided towards the image. I don't recall now the name of, of this procedure, but it makes sense. And uh, I think one can look it up. But I don't think it's industry standard anymore because people, um, uh, not anymore. So I don't think that it is industry standard yet because papers are not generally doing it. Uh, you, if there is a new multimodal transformer just coming out and uh, being announced by a paper, the analysis is actually very short on how well it does or why it does well. Yeah, it would be, definitely be great to, like you said, have some of those more enhanced discussion and analysis questions answered. We're seeing that now happen with GPT-3, where we're, before it was just like, this is the best model ever, like use it. <laughs> and now we're seeing, okay, yeah, like it can't, there's a lot of things it can't do, like logic, reasoning, it answers nonsensical questions, it has bias in it, etc. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to see that in uh, Vilbert and the other multimodal transformers as well. 
Yeah, and this would uh, generally benefit from the previous stages, the, the internet era. of So analysis that are done on GPT-3 are very helpful for multimodal transformers as well, because they are not fundamentally different. They're still transformers. They are just having another kind of input. And it's great that uh, research is more critical about what's happening. So then... In not just multimodal, but also in the field of ML in general, it's moving at such an incredibly rapid pace. If you just think about NLP, as I'm sure like just four years ago in 2016, the state of the art was using CNNs over word embeddings. And now if you do that, you'd be everyone would look at you like, what are you doing? Because we now we have these not only LSTMs that worked pretty well, but now transformers that just surpass those even more. How do you approach, uh, like, there's just so many papers coming out every single day. How do you approach your own learning in this field? Oh, yeah, that's a great problem that I have to solve daily, basically, <laughs> because um, I have so much else to do that it's actually really hard to assign. I have now one paper where I have to, uh, one hour when I where I want to read papers, or a lot of them. And yeah, so... How I do it, I try to, um, so I subscribe to uh, these Google Scholar alerts. So uh, I subscribe some people and their research and their related research. And that fills my inbox with, you know, papers that I should read. But I think the best uh, source of out of the box papers, uh, so that the ones that I do not expect and I, I do not subscribe to is Twitter. I think uh, following a lot of researchers you find uh, cool on Twitter gives you so much pointers to what you should follow right now because it's a network that you you don't have to uh, to stick to the citation network to to get new papers you can be also in a social network that points to very good papers to keep up to date and that was also a very <laughs> For me, when GPT-3 came out, it was one of the saddest Twitter days because uh, it was uh, that point where people were highlighting how well it does. And then I thought, oh God, I have to quit my job. I I know it's been solved. What should I do now? It, we are writing bird papers right now, but we should actually write GPT-3 papers. What are we doing with our life? That can happen too. And you just have to you know, get over it and uh, start to see also the things critically. So... Google Alerts is one thing that Twitter, uh, so Twitter is the other point. And yeah, sometimes I just don't have time to read a paper when I see it pointed out on Twitter. So I, I use Mendeley to save them really nicely ordered in folders for on topics and so on. Yeah, but I, th I don't think it's, a, it's the area where I really found the perfect solution on how to do it because it's... I think I, I didn't uh, find so much uh, time for that to organize myself, uh, so to give it even more priority. Because if I have to teach, for example, tomorrow, I focus on the teaching. I don't focus on the paper reading so much. Yeah, yeah. Do you try and read? You said you follow, obviously you're following like the biggest researchers, not only in Google Scholar but also curators on Twitter. Do you try and filter by? only what's your current research interest or do you try and read as widely as possible? 
Yeah, I try to read as widely as possible always. So sometimes I find a paper that's really related to my research and I just need to read the abstract because I already know what's going on in there. And some, and I know enough to come back to it when I'm writing something really related to it and I have to cite it. And But sometimes I find, I mean, the most interesting papers and the papers where I spend the most time in are actually the papers where I do not do actively research on because there I also need more time to understand what's going on and I need more time to catch up with the related work and just to make a little more YouTube... <laughs> Yeah, uh, no, no. Uh, so if I want to, I missed the word. So if I, uh... yeah. <laughs> so if I want to point out to a very great uh, cre uh, content creators in YouTube, then it's Yannick Kirchel who does a very great job at explaining uh, very complicated papers too very well. So every researcher would understand them. Yeah. So that's also one. Um, place to go where I really want papers that are not related to my field. Do you have any sort of bias when you're towards like papers that have more citations or papers that are older? No, definitely uh, just no, not at all. I don't even know what kind of citations my paper, the papers have that I, I read, not at all. And old papers are great to read, but I also don't think that... Yeah, so the problem with old papers is there's so much new ones that you'd never get to the old ones. So, the, I, of course, I, it's important to read the very important old ones. But I don't think... So if you're like me, uh, so I feel this pressure in research to be very up-to-date. And in machine learning, being up-to-date means the papers that have been published this month and two months ago is really way old. <laughs> yes, and they're becoming more and more. So usually I focus on the latest papers and not so much on the old ones. Okay. You mentioned that you store your queue, so to speak, in Mendeley. When you're reading a paper... What does you, do you have like a note taking method or how do you extract the insights to use later? Yeah, so note taking, if I do it on just plain paper <laughs> and, you know, paper that I could sometimes also lose if I don't, uh, if I don't, you know, have to have noted it down to understand it again if I read that paper again. And for me, storing it in Mendeley, and I mean storing the full citation, is enough to relook, to have a look again at the paper and just left leave off where, where I left it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But th this is how it works for me. It's, it's not like I'm uh, saying that everyone would ha should have the same recipe. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's, uh, it's interesting interviewing so many different people from in the different uh, subfields and even individually, everyone has their own preferred note-taking method. Because, like for you, you said that it's such a cutting-edge field; it's so new, and things are new. Things are happening all the time. Whereas, uh, I know researchers in in like older field, older quote unquote like computer <laughs> vision, where it's people where like the hard a lot of the problems have been mined, so to speak. And it's really about instead of keeping up with what's new, it's more about revisiting the old ideas of like mm -hmm. the 90s and ideas from other fields to try and to try and make those extremely high benchmarks even like that nth degree better yeah that makes sense it's a different field so a, a different approach yeah 
to start to talk a little bit more about your YouTube channel, can you, why did you, how did you have the idea for it? And what made you like commit to pursuing it? Oh, yeah. So I think that channel would have never happened if it wouldn't have been for the pandemic, I have to say. Because of the pandemic, I had to switch all my teaching that I usually do in university to a virtual format. And for me, it was a very hard experience because I was not at all used to being in front of a camera, the, even the webcam. I was not really used to being recorded and I was really scared of it. And I think so the psychological problems were for me harder than the technological ones. So to find OBS Studio and use it was for, was not hard at all. And how to record, how to edit was a learning process, of course. And there I'm learning so much um more every day and with every video but i think the hardest part for me was to you know be comfortable with hearing my own voice <laughs> with being comfortable to see myself on video and yeah that's what online teaching taught me to overcome this and after i overcame this i was thinking always about why uh, shouldn't I reach also a wider audience with what I do in a closed circle at the university. And yeah, this is how an AI news channel idea came into being. And then it was just a matter of how to do it, not anymore <laughs> of uh, that I should do it. Mm -hmm. Your videos are so different from other other machine learning videos on YouTube is that a lot of other the, a lot of the other ones are like Yannick like you said he does paper readings will he'll like annotate and draw things as he goes other people will just stand in front of the camera and summarize papers or ideas but you decided to take the animation approach was did you do animations before or was that something that you decided to pick up yeah, I didn't do it before. <laughs> it was yeah. So the problem is, then uh, I was at the stage of how to do it, and the problem is, I had a really hard time to f uh, buy a new webcam when uh, it was in the middle of the the hardest way. So uh, the first wave of the pandemic in Germany, and there was totally a shortage of webcams. I couldn't find a webcam, and I I was thinking, how should I make a good video where I put my face <laughs> on onto the video with a bad camera. Ah, that's not possible. What sh else should I do? And then I came up with the idea to animate stuff, not put myself uh, into the videos at all. And so I, yeah, it was actually very spontaneous. In one evening, I started to draw Miss Coffee Bean because I thought if I have uh, an avatar of me, I'm actually really evolving, you know, a separated uh, personality disorder with Miss Coffee Bean because now she's becoming someone else. She's not me anymore. Uh, yeah, but I drew her and I drew uh, more position stances of her so I could animate her into a very, into a movement, uh, so to speak. Yeah, that was it. And because I'm in video editing, I could already do uh, from online teaching and animating is something that I learned on the go. And where I get better and better, I see the limits and I see the potential of what I'm doing, how I, it could become better. But I also am sometimes just limited by my time and what about I'm limited by what I can do, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it works really well having that playful style along with the 
with like the animations, like you said, if they were super professional, you might feel the need to like <laughs> be not as playful, but because it's Miss Coffee Bean with like the different stances like this and, and the different <laughs> <laughs> the different facial expressions. Sometimes I'll just watch the video and just only look at the, the bottom right the bottom left hand corner and it's so it's really funny to watch. Yeah, that was also the first impression of um, my first viewers because uh, I, I asked them, and did you understand what I'm explaining in the video? No, I don't. I don't think so. I was just looking at Miss Coffee Bean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think at the second, third video, sometimes you can overcome it and then uh, it's fine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What does the, the video creation process look like for you? How, like, how do you choose what you want to talk about? How do you like start to scope out the what the, like the arc of the video should be, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the first I have to choose a topic and I have a list of topics. It's growing longer and longer and it's uh, growing faster than I can just tick off uh, topics that I already uh, talked about. But the sad part about talking uh, to a wide audience is that you also have to have topics that interest the audience and very narrow topics that are my daily research cannot be just as they are. So I cannot choose very specialized papers. I have to choose papers that are also themselves already an overview over what's happening or like really the state of the art with a very simple idea, because I also think that simple ideas are better and easier to communicate first. And yeah, so that's how I, I choose a topic. It should be also interesting for the audience. And, and that's a hard thing to to say actually from the beginning before having published the video and then afterwards i yeah i don't know the arc of the video just comes up totally naturally and i do not ever spend too much time discussing that because i always think about so i have always this my not i uh, not ideal in the sense that it would be better than the audience i have but my ideal target audience where so with idea that usual that my mind uh, audience. So I uh, think about how would I explain that to a student that uh, has some computer science skills. How I could I would ex how I would tell the story. And then I don't know the arc just comes totally naturally because also papers usually have an arc already. There's not so much work um, onto that. Interesting. Yeah, I guess you're just a natural at that part then. <laughs> <laughs> so to start to wrap this up a little bit, of course, your you people can find you at your YouTube channel, AI Coffee Break. And are there other websites or like social media that you want to shout out? Only the Twitter, which is also at AI Coffee Break. Otherwise, and the Reddit um, community, which is also at AI, uh, so R AI coffee break, mm -hmm. but otherwise, uh, no, I'm not that active on social media platforms. I will, I will start doing it as I go. Mm -hmm. And now to move on to the rapid fire questions that I uh, ask everyone at the end. The first of which is, what do you do for fun outside of work? Oh, <laughs> is there something outside of work? Yeah, <laughs> it is. Uh, so I. I actually love salsa dancing, but I cannot uh, do that, you know, since the pandemic started. I cannot do that anymore. Uh, I also love sailing. So I think these are like the two main things. But otherwise, I don't have that much time after, uh, after work. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, those are very wow, interesting hobbies. That's really cool. <laughs> Next is what book or books do you most often recommend to other people? Could be technical or non-technical. Yeah, so <laughs> book recommendations are usually not a thing that I do often because yeah, it's I don't want to be normative for what other people want to read because I, I so yeah, that's uh, has been my experience. But one thing I would uh, recommend to everyone, but, you know, I wouldn't expect them to like it so much, <laughs> would be uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. So uh, he's a language philosopher, among others. And he's, I think, so if you read at least one of his books, uh, they could be, can be very different depending on uh, when he has written book. But it can be a very humbling experience for any linguist, but also for any person, because it, it tells you a lot about the um, limits of communication, of language. And it can be a humbling experience and it can make you understand uh, better what, you, what your communications with others can be. Yeah, classical linguistics and communication theory is so fascinating and i really i'll actually have to pick that up because i really think that it's just so interesting to me to be to think about how like i read some of steven pinker's work on this and it's so fascinating to think about how the language itself shapes your thoughts and there and all, not only your thoughts but also like you said like the limits of communication where you only have if you were to talk in like machine terms, you only have some limited, super limited bandwidth between your thoughts and how you convey that to how you convey that to someone else. I just even heard in a a different podcast, I forget what her name was, but some researcher on this was talking about how in some cultures there's there is no difference in their language between thoughts and feelings. <laughs> and yeah. It's just really, it's so interesting to think about. It's such a fascinating topic. Totally. So Wittgenstein says that the limits of your language are the limits of your world. And that's such a strong um, saying. And uh, I think one has to read Wittgenstein to really understand it. It's so interesting how colors, it's something we totally agree upon. But why is my blue your blue? I, I don't know. And I will never know. And other, he's, he calls them nonsensical uh, terms like love or other like the the absolute truth or other stuff like this it's how how can i communicate that what i th think it's love it's also love for for anybody else yeah yeah and even in it's uh, also like the where you live and the culture that also goes back into the language so there's even feedback loops on that so like in certain Eskimo languages, they have 50 different words for different types of snow. Yeah, I, I know. And I, I actually really felt that because I was coming to Germany from Romania where there's more snow. So in Romania in winter, there's more snow. And I can't really discern three types of, of snow. I cannot call them. There's no word for it. But I can discern it. When, and if I explain these differences to a German, he doesn't really notice them. And I totally can imagine how someone can have 50 words for snow if you're living in a snowy regions. That's so awesome. Yeah, yeah. And of course, German itself also has some really cool words that encapsulate like really large subjects. I'm not going to try and butcher some of these, but, <laughs> <laughs> since it's extremely hard to pronounce. But yeah. <laughs> Moving on to the next one, what, and we might've already covered this, but what is a use case or research area in machine learning that you think is like not 
taken advantage of enough, not like underrated. Do you mean underrated in the sense that there's no uh, enough research going on there? Yeah. So, so to stick to the languages, I think it's underrepresented languages in research that it's a huge problem that there's not even more funding and even more research going on uh, that because there's so many papers about English. And if you want to find a Romanian bird, I don't think you won't for a very long time for obvious reasons. And yeah, I would think that funding more of not so English-centered academia to, to focus also on other languages would be so much better. Yeah, and it also relates back to, I was talking to someone on the podcast a few days ago about potentially merging language models with knowledge graphs. So you can have like more compressed things to attend over. And it, it comes a question, an interesting question stemming from that and with the languages is with a knowledge graph, you have concepts where you each node is like a concept is, but of course, different languages have different concepts. So how yeah. does that come into play? It, it just gets really weird really quick. Yeah, exactly. So we are having the problem in multimodality that modalities are so different from one another that you cannot capture something in language that you obviously capture always in the in pictures. But it's almost the same with multilinguality where there, you have languages where you cannot really translate things from one into the other for obvious reasons. And uh, I think a lot of challenges in multimodal machine learning, you have also in multilingual machine learning, and I, it would be awesome if they would collaborate more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Next question, what advice would you give to someone just entering the field? Oh, yeah, I think... <sighs> One good advice would be to, to never stop learning, but I think the main point of the advice would be how. And the advice would be to not wait so much or not focus so much on what's going on in the university where you are in, but use the internet. Limit yourself just by your internet connection because there's so many very good uh, resources on machine learning in general and uh, on the internet just lying around uh, waiting for you to to read them or listen to them because uh, i think we are especially now with the pandemic we see a lot of online teaching going on but i think there will be quite soon a shift from university teaching to a more to a wide audience kind of teaching where anyone in every culture that uh, can you know benefit from what is going on so Learn from the internet and use the search engines for your purposes. Yeah, definitely. I, I cannot second that more. Like mm -hmm. it's just, uh, I'm currently in my hometown, which is in New England in America. And it's like, there were only, there's only 2000 people here. It's super tiny. And if there, if the internet didn't exist, I never would have found programming, never would have found machine mm -hmm. learning. But because of the Coursera Andrew Ng course and because of all of the lecture videos available online, I was able to dive into this stuff and make a career out of it that I never would have been able to if not for the internet. That's awesome. <laughs> and the last question, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? <laughs> wow, that's a tough question. And I, I hope I will not upset anyone with this, but I think that too many papers, especially in NLP uh, and multimodal learning, are not very well scientifically conducted. Scientific in, in the sense that Karl Popper already defined it. So that 
there's a lot of papers having a hypothesis. There's a lot of papers that do then test this hypothesis with one or two or I don't know how many experiments. But very important, it is also so for having a great discussion in the paper, which papers usually don't, is to have other hypotheses that you think that might lead to the same result. Especially if you are working with obscure metrics that don't tell you so much what's going on, actually, if you're working with super complicated neural networks, and if you're working with data that has a lot of phenomena going on in the data, and where the neural network could just, you know, pick up anything. So after you have defined this alternative hypothesis, you also have to think and conduct, to think about experiments and conduct experiments that test if perhaps it's not the other hypotheses that are generate uh, are causing that result. And yeah, so I, I don't remember reading a paper having stated a null hypothesis. And I think that as I also do not want to school everyone and uh, anyone and also criticize too much because I'm actually also in, in falling into this category, I think, because um, too many research are researchers. So too many researchers are the victims of their community they are working in. We are working in a community full of conference deadlines where people do not work for years anymore on an idea, but more in months. And if you wait with your experiments and you start uh, hypothesizing other stuff and try to really figure out what's going on, someone else will publish your result in the meantime. And then you go with a very much, so with a much nicer paper out there and reviewers just tell you, yeah, but that's not novel anymore. You're not relevant anymore. Yeah. But I think that's a problem that hurts sometimes. <laughs> yeah. That's such a fantastic answer. It really, and it, a recurring theme of the podcast is the in, poor incentive structures in a lot of ways in research and academia, where not only are there problems in how double blind works in conferences, but there's also, like you said, you it's a kind of like a race to publish certain ideas. And also you're in a lot, in some ways you're kind of judged is not quite the right word, but I'll use it anyway for how many papers you do publish. Yeah. So it's a, yeah. uh, do you have any ideas on how this gets resolved, how it gets better? Oh, yeah. I, and I, I, so it's such a, a very rooted problem into the system that I think uh, some things that you have already mentioned, like peer review, are a thing that you have to fix first before fixing this uh, scientific problems of machine learning that is not conducted anymore that scientifically. And I don't know, perhaps I could encourage anyone with a strong scientific background and a lot of knowledge in math so that some more foundational work can be laid. So I could encourage these people to come and <laughs> rescue the field in a sense. So uh, yeah, I would love if that would be more predominant, but the whole system is rooted, uh, it has, you know, already bad roots in this sense. So perhaps fresh air from other people, so new people would, would solve the problem. But I think also the people that are already uh, in the system right now should start fixing the problems themselves. Yeah, that's, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, I can't think of a better way than to end it there. It's been a really interesting and wide-ranging conversation, Leticia. And I really do want to encourage the listeners to 
check out your YouTube channel and also follow along with your with the research that you do in multimodality and also this just that subfield in general because as we've talked about in this conversation there's so much potential for this to go maybe once we see uh, the GPT-50 then uh, more people <laughs> will start to get interested in this so thank you so much for coming onto the podcast it's been really fun thanks for inviting me and thanks for listening Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com, to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. engineered.com.